Welcome to the RSM Talk Big podcast, helping you invest well, understand money and achieve the best tax outcomes. Your hosts today are Andrew Sykes, Chris Oates and Young Han. Hey everybody and welcome to the RSM Talk Big podcast, where we talk about how to create, protect and generate wealth with you. Uh, my name's Andrew and I'm joined today by Young. Hi, everyone. And Chris. G'day, everyone. Today we are talking uh, health and health policy, and we're joined in that with uh, by Serena uh, Lacey um, from the Centre for International Economics. Welcome, Serena. Thank you for the invitation, Andrew. Oh, thanks for joining us. Hey, uh, give us a bit of your background. Tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, well, I lead the health business here at the Centre for International Economics. Uh, we're a boutique economic consulting firm that works mainly in Australia, but also um, globally. Uh, and we've been doing so for, you know, over 35 years and myself for over 20. So been around a while. <laughs> <laughs> and learnt a bit in that time. And, and you chose to go into healthcare. Yeah. So uh, I think health economics is a really, really important um a really important sort of place to be in a consulting space, but also, you know, to try and achieve good population outcomes. Uh, there are a lot of complex issues in healthcare, uh, how to get the, the funding amount right, how to fund the right services, how to get um, cost-effective outcomes so that that money goes further. I mean, it really is a, a, an extraordinarily interesting um, career. Uh, and uh, yeah, I really enjoy it. So Serena, of all the areas that you could choose in economics, why? Why did you choose healthcare? I'm just really interested uh, in improving the health system. Uh, and as an economist dealing with, you know, solving kind of complex economic issues, uh, for me, there's, you know, there's, there's no more an obvious place to be for that than trying to improve population health uh, and, you know, getting that balance between having the right amount of resources directed to the right patients at the right time to, to get, you know, to achieve what you're looking for and to get really cost-effective outcomes and make sure that, you know, the, the taxpayer dollar is extremely well spent um, to, to, to improve the livelihood of the entire population. So uh, it's a complex area, but it's extraordinarily interesting. Yeah, so if you can get, if you get it right, uh, if government gets healthcare right, based on obviously the advice of people like economists, it can have such a big impact on the lives of everyone, can't it? Well, absolutely. But I mean, it's not just government. It's, you know, the, the choices that we all make on a daily basis and governments can only, you know, uh, incentivize us uh, to behave in certain ways uh, and penalize us to behave in certain ways. Uh, so, yeah, it's really the responsibility of us all. But, you know, it's um, the health sector is uh, is expensive in Australia. Uh, and because of the kind of health system that we expect and that we have. Uh, and, you know, we need to make sure that um, that that investment is wise. Yeah, and it is it is one of the biggest areas of um, government budget. Um, how's it actually funded in Australia? How do we fund our healthcare system? So Australia has a, a really, really um, a terrific and unique health funding model, and there really isn't another one like it. So we have, I guess, what is called commonly called a sort of a mixed funding model. So we've got a, you know, a partnership really between government and private health insurers along with consumers to fund a, a, a health system that offers universal access to healthcare. So typically in Australia, you know, if you're unwell or you're sick or you're injured, you, know, you can get the care that you need. So notwithstanding the holes that all health systems have, uh, we really do have a, a, a 
compulsory universal health system. Uh, and that's really expensive and no government in the world can fund that on their own. Uh, so, you know, the partnership between government and private health insurers uh, is essential to the Australian funding model. So essentially you've got uh, government uh, spread over two levels. You've got the Commonwealth government funding primary care and aged care and mental health in the main. You've got them giving money to the states to fund hospitals, uh, you, public hospitals, that is. The private health insurers will pick up private hospitals, which are different to public hospitals and a very important complement to public hospitals uh, and also taking care of um, allied health services, uh, which... Um, which are terribly important to population health, not just surgically, but also around prevention and early intervention. Uh, and then you have consumers funding, you know, out-of-pocket costs uh, that sort of fall through all of those cracks. But it is this partnership between private health insurers and publicly funded health services that sustains the system. So it is a balance. So everyone has to play their part. How, how does that compare to some of our international some other countries, how, how do we compare? Well, it's, it, it, it's different in just about every way. So um, generally speaking, in countries that, have, uh, that are supported under a private health funding model, uh, it's not compulsory, it's not universal access, uh, and that component funds most of healthcare. Uh, whereas in Australia, it's just a proportion of that. And then you might you might have other countries that necessarily don't have a big focus on private health insurance uh, and have state-funded health services only uh, that are typically extraordinarily budget constrained. So our, our health system is uh, very, very different uh, and it's very much shaped. Um, it was sort of shaped sort of in that sort of late 80s and 90s, really sort of starting with Medicare and then launching into a whole range of incentives to, 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 to shore up private health insurance so that you could take the burden and then try and basically keep people healthy as well as keep people out of public hospitals. Yeah, I can uh, remember life pre-Medicare and it was, it was an enormous initiative when it came in, wasn't it? It was. Uh, and still, you know, the pillar of the Australian healthcare system, uh, but uh, needs supports around it to make it financially sustainable. It's it's great. We hear, we do actually hear a lot in the the general press that it's it's negative about our healthcare system. So it's it is nice to hear someone say we're doing well. And I think you mentioned about the role of private health insurance in the system. So we often get encouraged to get the private health insurance. Do you think it's worth it? Well. It depends what perspective you're responding to that from, either as an individual or as a society. From a society's perspective, absolutely 100% it is worth it because if we didn't have private health insurance, if we didn't have a healthy private health insurance system, we would not have the quality of healthcare that we have. We just simply couldn't afford it. So, um, I mean, that's really the reason why so much uh, effort and subsidy goes into shoring up that coverage rate. Uh, so from a society's perspective, absolutely. But from a personal perspective, uh, well, you know, it very much depends. You know, if you're very young and you're very fit and you're very healthy, you will face every stick in the world from government to make you take up private health insurance because <laughs> without it, it's probably not worth it. <laughs> um, but also some if- countries actually <laughs> encourage people to actually save up rather than getting a private health insurance. So would, would this kind of system work in Australia? Yes, I, I guess just to give you a little bit of context about what that 
is about. So that's medical savings accounts, which is, um, I guess, a sort of a little bit of an in-between sort of health funding model that a lot of countries use. It's not really private health insurance, but it's a bit close to it. So it's really matching people's effective private health insurance coverage with their level of savings. So um, that's generally how it's done overseas. Uh, but there has been debate in Australia over the years around having medical savings accounts here, particularly around those areas where private health insurance isn't terribly good value for money. So, um, you know, despite the fact that all of the marketing around private health insurance is often around the extras, uh, it's, you know, that's not actually where you get your biggest value because, you know, it's, it's pretty difficult to go to claim on your extras and not find yourself with, you know, a relatively large gap to still have to pay. So the value proposition isn't really that strong there. So the concept is, well, why don't we as Australians save and have a special savings account that when we need to, 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 to go to the physio, we need to, um, we, we want to take those, um, uh, the sorts of things that we might use some of those extras sort of covered items for and pay for it out of our savings. Well, there's nothing stopping us doing that, but the reality is we don't do that. You know, we always find something else to spend that extra 50 bucks a week on. Uh, so the concept is around what could government do to help us save? Uh, and it's a little bit like a superannuation sort of incentive that if we saved for our own health um, in a special account that was used for our healthcare for our out-of-pocket costs when we needed it, could we get some kind of tax advantage for doing that? Um, and, and or, or potentially forgiveness from some of the sticks that try to make us take up private health insurance. Or even so that, just employer putting some money into the this savings account like they do for super guarantee. They do, but that's that's still government stipulated. So, and there are, protect, there are special sort of tax arrangements around that. So it's still, you know, an incentive, an incentivized product. Uh, so yeah, it is, it is a really, really interesting concept. Um, and It'd be, it'd be terrific to see more, you know, as many mechan good mechanisms in place uh, as there possibly could be to give people options for um, saving for and funding their own health care. The challenge uh, is, well, where does the money come to subsidise it? And what does it mean for the other subsidies that are already in place around private health insurance? So it's quite complex because, again, the whole Australian health funding model is predicated on having a really vibrant, sustainable private health insurance sector so that we have good private hospitals to alleviate the burden on our good public hospitals. Yeah, it's interesting because I've, I've had it said to me, particularly after someone's gone to the dentist and they realise like how little they get back from their private health insurance for something like a crown. And the conversation normally goes, oh, I shouldn't have been in health insurance for the last 20 years. I should have saved that money every year. Um, I just don't think the average person or in, not many people will actually do that. I think you you made the point that um, the money always gets spent somewhere else. Build up this nice part of it and you don't want it to go on the health care. Yeah, and I guess it's also when you think about the the way that we subsidise our private health insurance sector, their subsidies are either about increasing uptake or they're about sharing costs so as an individual you can't share your costs with anyone else other than yourself so you are either never sick or you're sick sometimes on your or you're always sick and you've got no one to share that with whereas um the incentives around private health insurance require a lot of that risk pooling so that that can be a viable system so yeah if you if you're going to take the individual approach you you know it really is to roll the dice yeah, it's interesting, you, Andrew, you comment about insurance premiums. It's, I know life insurance companies, for people that are healthy, 
they might get a benefit by reduced premiums, but if you're unhealthy, you might have to pay a bit more. Do you see whether there's a need for health reform to reward good health and maybe penalise unhealthy habits? Well, yes, is the short answer. Um, and that's kind of, that's not sort of a new development. It's just something that's actually quite difficult to achieve. So, you know, we do have systems in place that currently um, penalise unhealthy habits. Uh, I mean, the, the most obvious example is the uh, enormous tax rates applied to um, cigarettes in particular, but also alcohol. Uh, we also have um, uh, rewards for, you know, um, doing the right thing. So, I mean, I guess a couple of examples that come to mind, you've got, you know, some diets like the CSI Rotator Wellbeing Diet you know, will return your course fees to you if you complete the program and comply with what it tells you to do. Uh, and, you know, you've got some of the private health insurers will offer, you know, incentives for free gym shoes and things like that because they know if, if their membership goes to the gym, they're going to be healthier as a rule and, and, and kind of manage their health. So with, there are sort of little pockets of it, um, of, of that, and that's certainly something that's important to capitalize on do more of always seek to improve on absolutely going forward the challenge though is that um we have kind of essentially a no fault health system so um i mean it's it's bit there's only so much that you can control i mean when you think of that the leading cause of death for men in australia is coronary heart disease and it's dementia for women followed closely followed by coronary heart disease i mean these sorts of things can be difficult to um self-select out of uh, and, and obviously cancer is a big driver of deaths in Australia as well. Uh, so, yes, we do need a system that um, does more to reward being healthy and penalise being unhealthy. Um, but we also, because we're committed to universal health care, uh, we need to make sure that we're funding um, things on a no-fault basis. Uh, we could also stop middle-aged men riding mountain bikes and having accidents. <laughs> would make would make the health system cheaper as well. But so, so what you're saying overall is if we had a healthier population, so if we focused on health, um, it wouldn't cost as much. Would, would that be fair to say? Well, it would, um, although I must say one of the things driving up the cost of healthcare is us getting healthier and more wealthy and have higher expectations of what we want from health. But yes, absolutely, prevention and early intervention are um, pillars of uh, improving population health uh, and uh, are, are, you know, a real, uh, a real area for future policy focus. Uh, the challenge with getting them over the policy line uh, at times is it's quite difficult to do, I guess what we would do is, you know, traditional cost-benefit analysis around prevention programs because it's a bit difficult to pinpoint the counterfactual uh, and measure the difference between doing something preventative and not doing something preventative. Uh, so it, it's, it's often very challenging to get preventative healthcare policies um, uh, over the line and widespread and well-funded. Uh, but, yes, absolutely, that is something that um, is a core priority of government and for all Australians. So in that note, what is government doing now to reform the health system and is this a move in the right direction? Uh, well, there's, uh, there's lots of things going on at once, <laughs> as I suppose there always is uh, in healthcare, but I think, you know, well, I guess it's because it's what I'm closest to, but I really do think there's been a, a very long period of very sustained reform in health uh, for some time now uh, and absolutely in the right direction. So I guess it's sort of a, this kind of a gradual shift away from the 
what I would sort of colloquially like describe as the pincushion approach where you sort of have a sick person and you do absolutely everything you possibly can to them and see what works, uh, which is enormously expensive and not very nice for the patient. Uh, and moving to, um, you know, much more focus on um, being more patient-centric and well, what does this patient actually want from their healthcare? Uh, what is a good outcome for them? I mean, is it that... Um, extra 10 years of life or is it a good quality five years or you know being and, and thinking about how do you integrate services a little bit more and try not to kind of deliver them in the silos of different medical professions and so say well when we kind of put together this jigsaw of health specialists how do we improve care uh, so there's um, a really good trend towards being more patient-centric a really positive trend towards multidisciplinary models um, of care uh, where you're getting, you know, not just specialists, but also, um, you know, healthcare workers to, to, to work together to, to get, you know, the, the expertise, the right expertise when it's needed and but where you can sort of optimise that skills mix and get, you know, um, you, you don't necessarily need the most expensive unit of labour in the room at all times and, and just sort of trying to find ways to package uh, care together uh, so that you achieve both better outcomes for patients and um, improve the cost effectiveness of care. I absolutely agree with that. I actually work with a lot of doctors. And one thing that just opened up my eyes was about the MBS. So how how little education and support the doctors get when they're going through that ease of study. And all of a sudden, they've got a fellowship and they're like, they're supposed to know everything. But when, you, when you're looking at MBS, it's actually designed to provide those qual- high quality care and preventive health care. And GP is also GP specialist. So if you if we can actually provide more support for the GPs, I think the overall health system can get better because people in that area actually servicing the patient can provide a better system and better support. But if we don't have the right policy and support from the government and then the system itself, they they just under the pressure. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I mean, getting really, I guess that's pull part of the jigsaw puzzle of health funding. So you've got to get all the pieces working well to get the best outcome. And and primary care is absolutely critical in that regard, particularly when you think about the the most expensive thing to happen to a person is to have them end up in hospital. So um, the more we can do to to manage uh, severity uh, and improve self-management of patients uh, and avoid those sort of high cost interventions, absolutely the better. Um, And there's certainly been, I guess, a, a long process of MBS reform over the last few years. Uh, which has been trying to really kind of update the MBS to to reflect um, good um, quality evidence around interventions that work uh, and potentially take things off the MBS that aren't necessarily achieving that, which is always, you know, I guess a a very, very difficult process. But I guess one thing that I would say around um, things that are happening in healthcare reform is it's actually pretty difficult well, not just healthcare, but all reform at the moment because of COVID. I mean, I think we can lose sight of the fact that how much COVID has financially cost us. Yes. <laughs> and, and what that's done to the options for reform. I mean, reform is um, quite often an expensive process and you've got to transition people towards that. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I think there's a lot of good intentions in there and the pathways are really looking positive. Uh, but the... Um, where I think perhaps can be be forgiven for, you know, taking a pause uh, and and dealing with, you know, the the huge uh, effort uh, financially and resource-wise that's required to get our uh, vaccination strategy uh, working uh, along with other parts of the 
the COVID response plan. Yeah, I think that was uh, one of the most surprising things for me throughout the whole COVID pandemic was uh, I always thought we had a lot more hospital beds than we did. I was just really surprised to see how few there actually were. Well, it's, I guess it's it's not so much just the hospital beds, but it's, it's the bodies that you need around the bed. And in a COVID environment, you're taking out not just a bed, you're taking out 20 bodies around it because all of a sudden they've all got to isolate. So um yeah, it's it's really the knock-on effect that each bed requires and taking and taking that bed out. And I guess a bed ain't a bed ain't a bed. Like there are different types of beds, uh, and it depends what kind of bed is required for you know a particular response. And in this case, it just happens to be those really expensive ICU beds, yeah. <laughs> which yeah. we have the least. Yeah. <laughs> An enormous strain on that system. So I, I think you you did say how good our healthcare system was in general. I think that's a testament to it that we we've seemed to have made it through reasonably well. And I think one of the thing, key things that I'm taking is private health insurance isn't just so you're covered to go to hospital or get a private, go into the private hospital. It's, there's a wider impact to the to society, really. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a social goal for sure. Yeah. It's about helping everyone, everyone paying a little bit so everyone gets looked after. Yeah. So that's interesting. I've never thought of it like that before. Well, thank you for your time today, Serena, and thank you, Young and Chris. Um, terrific episode. Uh, that's all we've got time uh, to talk about today. Uh, join us again uh, by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, my name's Andrew, and this has been the RSM Talk Big podcast. Thank you very much. Talk Big. Create, save, and protect with RSM.